We're up to chapter 1, Mishnah 6. I'm going to read it quickly and then we'll try to dig into it. Yehoshua ben Prachav and Har Beli Kiblumehem. Again, we're going through the transmission of Torah, teachers to students from Moshe to the Men of Great Assembly to Shimon Atzadik to Antignos. And then we got to the doublets where we had last week the two Yosis. They were the first time where the Jewish leadership was split into two, the Avbezdin, the head of the Sanhedrin, and the Nasi and the president. And this is the second set of Zugos who are their students. Yehoshua ben Pracha and Itai Ha'arbeli. And the next two Mishnahs are the teachings of Yeshua ben Pracha and Itai Ha'arbeli from Arbel. So Yeshua ben Pracha Omer, Yeshua ben Pracha says, it's three things. Asei l'charav, accept upon yourself a teacher, k'nei l'chachaver, and acquire for yourself a friend, v'havidan eskal ha'adam l'kafskos, and judge every person favorably. So let's give a little bit of a background who this person was and try to see what we can learn about his story and then dig into this teaching. Again, three things. Number one, make for yourself a teacher, a rabbi. Number two, acquire for yourself a friend. And thirdly, judge every person favorably. So like we said, Yeshua ben Prachia was one of the second pair of Zugos, second pair of Jewish leaders who together, there was a, a two-man leadership atop the nation. Now, we don't really know a lot about him, about his story, but there's a few very famous episodes brought down in various places in the Talmud that talk about his relationship with his student, whose name was Yeshu Hanotsri, which translates as to uh, Yeshu from Nazarene. You know, if we look at the various parts in the Talmud that talk about J.C., uh, one of them is about his relationship with his teacher, Rabbi Yoshua ben Prachia. For example, the most lengthy narrative is found in the book of Sanhedrin. Uh, interestingly, it's actually, if you look at a standard issue Talmud in Sanhedrin, you won't find any reference of Rabbi Yoshua ben Prachia. And the reason why is because for various times in the Middle Ages, the Christian censors did not allow the publication of Talmud with certain snippets of it, certain sections of it, certain parts of it that they felt uh, were critical of either their founder or their religion. And therefore, they said, oh, you, you publish Talmud, you just have to take out that section. And therefore, it was published always hiddenly, like there's a book called Chesronus Hashats, the missing parts of the Shas, the missing parts of the Talmud, and they contain all these sections that were that were excised from the Talmud by the Christian censors. And in this new edition of the Talmud that I'm holding in my hand, actually, if you'll notice, the page of the Talmud doesn't go all the way to the bottom. There's actually two places in this book, on page 43a, You'll notice it's 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 actually this is not part of the actual text. So if you if you look at the older editions, you'll notice there's a big white space on the bottom of 43a and of 107b. And the reason why is that the printers were trying to show that there's something missing there, even though they couldn't publish it because of the censorship. But they wanted to demonstrate to the readers there's something missing here. But today over here they actually inserted it again. You could still read it here. And this is, is interesting because some want to suggest that his teaching 
his teaching in the Mishnah, Peretri Avos, is a reflection of his thoughts of his estranged, about his estranged students. So let's read this, this, this story and uh, learn a little bit about this personality and uh, his relationship with his student and maybe how it relates to his teaching. So the Talmud here is talking about proper ways of educating. Both as parents and as teachers, we have to develop relationship with our charges, with our students, with our children. And there's a tension between various kinds of emotions that we're trying to convey. You know, there's the feelings of love and closeness. And then on the other hand, sometimes parents and educators feel a need to show a little bit of distance, a little bit of criticism, a little bit of critique, a little bit of pointing out where the child or the student went awry. So how do these two, what's the proper balance between these two? And the Talmud says that you have two hands, the right hand and the left hand. The right hand, of course, is stronger. Says the Talmud, the left hand should push away, should be critical with your weaker hand, but the right hand should bring closer, which means you should have a higher proportion of love and closeness in that kind of relationship than one of harsh criticism. And it says, unlike two people, unlike Elisha, the prophet Elisha, that he pushed away Gehazi, his student, with two hands. The story goes that Gehazi did something wrong, and therefore Elisha was very harsh in his punishment of him. And unlike, this is in the censored text, unlike Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia and Yeshu Hanatsri. So what's that story? What's the story where Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia, the subject of our Mishnah, and his, uh, it seems like he mistreated his student or he was a little bit too harsh. What's that story? The story goes that when Yanai the king, we know him as Alexander Yanai. Alexander Yanai was one of the Hasmonean kings. So after the story of Hanukkah, the Jewish people, again, they reinstituted sovereignty over the land. So there's Jewish kings. And they're the family of the Hasmoneans. And they're very righteous Kohanim. They're from the Kohanic tribe. However, over several kings, they began to follow the path of the Sadducees. And one of them, one particularly brutal king, was named, was, his name was Alexander Yanai. And he went on a campaign of assassinating rabbis. He had a vendetta against the rabbis, and he was assassinating them. So one of the greatest rabbis of the time, Rabbi Shubham Rachia, was one of the religious leaders of the nation. He fled to Egypt, to Alexandria. That's what the Talmud says. And he went with a student, Yeshu. And there was another, there was one rabbi that was okay. His name was Shimon ben Shetach. We'll actually see him in the next. He's the next one of the Zugos, Rabbi Shimon ben Shetach. And the reason why he was spared from Alexander Yanai's assassination campaign is because he was Alexander Yanai's brother-in-law. And therefore, he was okay. All the other rabbis either were killed or had to flee, which obviously shows you what kind of guy this uh, Jewish king is. You know, with, with Jewish kings like this, you know, who needs enemies, right? We'd rather, have, we'd rather have Greek rule than Jewish rule where they're actually treating the rabbis worse off. Anyhow, so, so Rabbi Shubham Pracha and his student Yeshu are in Alexandria, they're fleeing and they're hiding. And 
Alexandria, incidentally, is the world capital of sorcery. And there's other stories in the Talmud about Yeshua Nutsri, what he did in Alexandria, what he learned in Alexandria. Anyhow, they're there for a while, and they get a message from Shimon ben Shetach in Jerusalem. Shimon ben Shetach, the other rabbi, who is the brother-in-law of the king, he's in Jerusalem, and he sends a message to Alexandria to Rabbi Shubham Prachia, and he tells him a verse in scripture. The verse says that Jerusalem is, the holy city is barren, and I'm desolate. And he's trying to hint to him, it's okay to come back. Come back to Jerusalem, the campaign against the rabbis is over. So they start the trip back to Israel from Alexandria. And on the way, they're stopping off at an inn. And a Jewish inn along the way, probably somewhere along the Sinai. And this inn was a Jewish innkeeper. And they see the great Rabbi Shua ben Pracher traveling with the students. And they give him great honor. They pull out the red carpet. And they give him a, probably a lavish meal. And everyone, when they walk into the room, everyone stands up. And everyone's like, wow, like they're really treating the rabbis with lots of respect. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia, he tells his students, it's not clear if there were multiple students, it was just Yeshu there. He tells them, how lovely, how beautiful is this achsanya? And the problem, the word achsanya, it has multiple meanings. It's an ambiguous word. It can mean either how lovely is this inn or how lovely is this innkeeper because the word means both. So he meant to say, what a beautiful inn. How look how well they're treating us. But his student, he took it to mean how beautiful is this innkeeper. And Yeshu tells his teacher, yeah, but her eyes are a little bit narrow. Not that beautiful. That's what he tells about the innkeeper. So he tells him, wait a minute. I'll read you the quote here. Amarlo, Russia, Bakakata Usik. He said to him, Russia, wicked one. This is what you're looking at. You're looking at if her eyes are a little bit mismatched. And he pushed him away. And the Talmud says what he did. He had 400 trumpets and he excommunicated him. And this was a pedagogical tactic. You know, sometimes teachers, they, as a way to bring the kid or the student or the charge back along on the path, they push him away. And that kind of creates um internal turmoil for the student. And the student hopefully will rectify their ways. That was the idea. But he did it too forcefully. And the student now is estranged and he's trying to he's trying to be accepted back in the clique of students and his teacher is rejecting him. And several times he comes back and tries to get in his teacher's favor and the rabbi tells him no. And finally, one time, he's about to accept him finally to bring him back in the fold, but he's in the middle of saying the Shema. And in the middle of saying the Shema, you can't interrupt your prayer. So he tells him, he tells him like this, like points with his finger, one minute, I'll be, I'll be with you in a minute, which Yeshu interpreted as another rejection. He got fed up. He goes and picks up a brick and starts bowing down to the brick and starts doing idolatry. And after he finishes the Shema, his teacher says to him, okay, do repent. He says, oh, I can't repent. It's too late for me. And concludes the Talmud, this Yeshu, this individual, he practiced magic and he led the Jews or led Israel or led a faction of Israel astray. Thus concludes the episode. Now, it's interesting that this, or at least this storyline, doesn't really match with the 
accepted timeline of the founder and the hero of the Christians because this took place about 100 years before the Common Era. So the timeline doesn't align. So it's a big question in this butch written about this topic of does the Yeshu of the Talmud, does the Yeshu of the Talmud, is that the same Yeshu of the Christians? It's a separate question. It seems like from Jewish sources, this is the guy. This is the same person that eventually founded a certain sect, a subsect within the Jewish people that morphed into its own religion. Now, I saw something really interesting. If you look at this Mishnah and the, the three teachings of this Mishnah, Rebecca Kamenetsky, one of the commentators on this, on this, on Perkyavos, he says like this. He says, this is the, well, the most famous story we know about Rabbi Prakha. And here we're told is what, what's his thoughts on it? He's instructing us, have yourself a teacher, have a good friend, and judge favorably. What he is perhaps intimating is that his student, his wayward student, he started his own religion. He started, so to speak, his own Torah. Where do you get that from? Who invents their own Torah? The only way you can invent your own Torah is if you don't have a teacher. And therefore, he's telling, essentially telling us that what is the way to ensure that the Torah continues and there's no schisms is where if a student is really committed and he understands that you have to study Torah from your teacher, then it's not likely that you'll go make up your own stuff and go lead factions of the Jews astray. Let's dig into the content of, of this Mishnah. So if you'll notice, first of all, everyone points this out, that the verb used to describe the method of acquiring a teacher and a student or and a, and a peer and a friend is different. It says, accept or make for yourself a rabbi or a teacher, but acquire a, a, a friend or a peer. So a rabbi is a teacher, someone you learn from as a mentor. And a friend is someone who's a friend, is an acquaintance. He's on your level, so to speak. And we're told that you would, that you make for yourself, you accept upon yourself a rabbi, but you acquire for yourself a friend, which seems to imply that which one of them is more important? It's the friend that's more important because acquire means even if you have to pay. And all the commentators point out, even if you need to pay for a friend, it's so critical to have a friend, to have a good friend, even if it costs you money, it's worth it. I know a story about my one of my great uncles. He was the chief rabbi of Antwerp. He's a great Torah scholar. And he came to Israel and he came with a big check. And he went to went to one of the great rabbis in Israel and he slapped the check check down on his desk. He says, The Mishnah says, buy yourself a friend. I'm buying your friend. I want to be your friend. There's some sort of difference here in the relationship between how someone accepts upon themselves a teacher and how they acquire for themselves a friend. So what I found, um, the consensus, one of the consensuses in the commentaries is that what kind of teacher should you look for? It says, accept upon yourself, make him a teacher. What That implies that he may be on his own, on his own merit, is not necessarily worthy of being your teacher. You have to make him into a teacher. If you didn't make him into a teacher, he wouldn't be a teacher. So what that means is that, of course, let's say you have someone who's the greatest teacher in the world, the greatest rabbi in the world. Him, you don't need to make him a teacher. He already is a teacher. As opposed to someone who's just another guy. He's not a great scholar. He's not so old. He doesn't have a big white beard. 
You don't look at him as being some sort of authority on teaching. He, he's someone that you need to make him a teacher because otherwise he wouldn't be one. So what this is telling us, and all the commentators point this out, is that even if the teacher is younger than you, and even if the teacher is less qualified than you, and even if he's a, a, a smaller scholar than you, and he's not as talented as you, you make him a teacher. Make him your teacher and study from him. From him. And the idea being is that some point out is that when you once you accept someone as your mentor, what their word has more sway. So you study Torah from your friend, and yeah, he's my friend, right? We could argue with him. If he's a teacher, then you'll accept it. And thus, it's actually a tool of acquiring more knowledge is having many, many mentors. Because once someone is assigned as your mentor, you'll learn from them. And the more people you learn from, the more knowledge you're going to acquire. What's telling you to be, be on the prowl for people who could teach you, for teachers. Because by doing that, you're always looking for more knowledge and more guidance and more leadership, and you know what? Well, you'll end up with more of it. And what if you're in a place, there isn't a great rabbi, there isn't a great scholar. You know what? Make someone into a rabbi. Make him into a scholar. Make him into your scholar because he'll teach you something. And the Talmud even says that once someone teaches you anything, any one thing, you have to treat him as if he's your rabbi. Once you have someone who teaches you even one thing, even in this only in, the, in this small area of life or of knowledge, they are a mentor for you. And once you have a mentor, like, and that's it. They, they're for, they, forever they taught you something, you have to appreciate that. And you have to honor them. You have to respect them. My venerated grandfather, a blessed memory, his whole life, one of his, one of his hallmarks was that he was always looking for teachers. And when he came to Yeshiva in the Mir, in 1934, he found the great Rabbi Rucham Lavavitz, and that was his teacher. But uh, sadly, two years later, 1936, Rabbi Rucham died at the very young age of 61, and therefore he had to find another teacher. And he found another teacher. And then when his next teacher passed in 1971, he found another teacher. And then when he passed in 1980, he found another teacher. Who, who happened to have been 20 years his junior. So he's, my grandfather's already living in Jerusalem. And every week he would travel. My grandfather's already, he's in his 70s and 80s. He would travel every week to study by his teacher. He, he would travel to his teacher to study by him, even though he's 20 years his junior. And my grandfather's already accepted and known as one of the great rabbis of Israel at the time. And... Yeah, and this is an actual fulfillment of our Mishnah. Find yourself a teacher, find someone who could teach you something, and study from him. And so what if he's younger than you? So what? If he has something to teach you, then go study by him, and that way it'll yield greater clarity. It will – you'll be able to assemble more knowledge, and you'll be able to learn more generally. Continues the Mishnah. Acquire a friend. This one is even more important than having a teacher. It's having a friend. And even if it means that you have to pay for it, you should pay for it. And simply put, a friend is someone that you could talk to. A teacher is someone that you have reverence for. Maybe you cannot have such an open relationship with a teacher. However, a friend, a peer, is someone 
who you you're really on the same level with, and therefore you could be more open with. Uh, and they have a very unique uh, gift that they can offer you by giving you their outsider's perspective. You know, we are placed in this world and with a purpose. And the purpose is to become better people, to become great people. And that's the, what Torah is, the manual for greatness. But if we really think about it deeply, we'll realize that the most biased person in the world about a person is that person themselves. We have so many delusions and, and fantasies about who we really are and what our strengths and weaknesses really are that it's very hard for us to actually, you know, the person who is least, oh, simultaneously the most capable and the least capable of fixing that person is the one tasked with doing the job. And if you're able to bounce your ideas off a friend who is not, who doesn't suffer from the same delusional self-image and biases that you have, they could have a much more accurate, much more keener sense of who you really are and can help you achieve your perfection through their guidance and through their advice. And thus, it's obviously so critical to have a good friend, even if it means paying for it, it's worth it. Now, I want to read to you the Rebbeinu Yonah, who I think really encapsulates why it's so critical to have a good friend. And he tells us, There's three reasons why you need to have a good friend. Number one, Torah to study Torah. And he quotes the Talmud. And the Talmud says that the great rabbi said, I studied a lot for my teachers, but you know who I studied from even more than my teachers? My friends. And even more than that is my students. And therefore, if you learn more from your friends than you do from your teachers, how critical it is it for Torah study to have friends? That's the first reason why you need to have a friend for Torah study. Number two, for mitzvos. A friend can help you get to where you need to be in the with regards to fulfillment of mitzvah. And he gives another he gives an example. He says that when people, you know, we have a tendency to sin, to not do mitzvos. But if I'm gonna sin. I'm only going to sin for myself. I'm not going to sin for his benefit, right? Listen, if someone has a, a really difficult temptation to sin, they have that temptation, but they don't have the t- temptation that their friend should sin. And therefore, I'm only going to sin if it's going to benefit me, or I'll, I assume it'll benefit me, but not if it benef- it'll benefit someone else. And therefore, he says, suppose you have two people who are good friends. Well, if I want to sin, but I have my friend with me, I'm not going to sin and help him. So therefore, by having a friend with me, it's going to prevent me from sinning as well and vice versa. And thus, both of them will follow the path towards righteousness. That's his example. But broadly speaking, we could say you have a good friend, a good peer, it keeps you it keeps you grounded. And if you have similar goals, working together – is much more powerful. Two are much more powerful than the than the sum of the parts, than uh, one plus one. That's the second example. That's the second reason why you need a good friend. And thirdly, for advice. When you have a good friend and you know that what you tell them is in confidence and you could trust them with everything and they 
are when you tell them your your deepest, most intimate feelings, uh, they're not going to sell you out. Someone like that, you can really confide in. It's almost you could offload some of your internal turmoil that we all have within ourselves. You could offload that onto someone else. That's a way to grow and to become more healthy and to become more stable and to become a, a greater person. To someone that, you know, we all have so much anxiety and so much, like I said, internal turmoil within us. You have a good friend you could share secrets with and you could ask for advice in naughty dilemmas and situations that you encounter that's a very valuable thing to have a therapist would certainly be would certainly qualify as someone who would fulfill these categories and thus it's so critical to have a good friend now lastly we're told to judge favorably so there's some laws actually about this and this is not the only mishnah in our book where it talks about judging favorably there's other mishnahs we'll see later on about judging favorably but generally speaking in the laws of judging favorably it really it has some standards. You don't judge every person favorably in every case because not every case are you judging. You only judge when there is ambiguity. So if there's a, an ambiguous person, you don't know if he's righteous, you don't know if he or she is wicked, then, and they behave in a way that could be interpreted both ways, then you really have to make a judgment call because you don't know the character of this person and you don't know the act could be viewed in multiple ways. It could be viewed as a mitzvah or as a sin. Then you judge favorably. If someone is a complete tzaddik, they're entirely righteous, even if something which seems very clearly that it's a sin, you have to find some way to judge them favorably. Conversely, if someone is totally wicked and they do a mitzvah, even that you have to judge negatively and try to say, well, yeah, he probably did it for some ulterior motive. They did a mitzvah, but really it's because they wanted other people to give them honor and plaudits. So we're really talking about this this, this big gray zone of ambiguity, that's when you need to judge favorably. So what's the connection between judging favorably and having a good friend and a teacher? They don't seem to be connected at all. So I found in some of the commentaries, they tell us that the only way to have, to fulfill clause number one and two, to have a a mentor that you respect and you accept what they say and to have a friend that is beloved and trustworthy is if you judge favorably. Because someone that you are a mentor, so you're with them a lot in various situations in life. And they, they, they do things and you're privy to that. And there's all different ways to judge them in, 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 in a myriad of life situations. And certainly a friend, you're, you're, you're hanging out with them, you're doing things together. And you see things which may be questionable. And you're like, hmm, this person behaves in this way. I'm not so sure they're a good friend for me. I'm not so sure they're a good teacher for me. And thus, every person is suddenly disqualified. Because every single person in the world, there's no situation or there's no person that has nothing about them that's maybe even slightly questionable. And if you're quick to judge people unfavorably, you'll have no friends. Because how could you have friends with people that are corrupt? At least in your eyes, they're corrupt. You'll have no teachers because, well, who wants their step from a teacher who's corrupt? And then you'll be left on your own. So it's a necessary prerequisite to having a teacher and having a mentor, having a student and having a friend is to judge favorably. And one of the commentaries points out even a step further. Suppose someone actually sinned 
and there's no ambiguity about it whatsoever. Says the Talmud, If you saw a Torah scholar that sinned by day, don't judge them at night, because they're ready, they're ready to repent it. Yes, even if someone already did sin, they sinned by day, but by nighttime, you can't judge them negatively about it because they already repented. It doesn't disqualify them forever. Even if someone did sin and there's no way to judge them favorably, that does not need to be a blemish on their persona forever. Part of judging favorably is assuming even post-facto, post-sin, in believing in the character and the conscious of the person that they repented. Now, I saw something really interesting, really clever from Rebecca Kamenetsky, where he says that the Rambam tells us, and this is, of course, an idea that you know maybe you don't, maybe you don't even need the Rambam to tell you, but there's a very famous Rambam who talks about how people are influenced by their surroundings. We spoke about this last time. That if you're around good people in a good environment, in a good social setting, you'll probably regress to the mean, as they say. And you're, or they they say today, you are the average of the five people that you most encounter with or you most interact with. That's an idea that you find. That if you take just the five people that you that you interact with the most, find the average of that, that's who you are. So th- thus, if you interact with good people and righteous people, then you'll raise your game to be on par with them. So that's the idea. So suppose someone who you're, is your friend or your teacher, and you interact with them a lot, and they do something which is ambiguous. And there's two ways for you to make the judgment call. If you judge them as being righteous, that elevates the average of the people you encounter with. And thus, what happens to you? You follow suit. And thus, you're gonna, you're more likely to do a mitzvah by judging favorably. Whereas if you judge unfavorably, and this is people that you interact with, you're very likely to actually follow their ways because that's the rule. You are, you behave in a way, generally speaking, people do not depart from the standards that they are surrounded with. And therefore, if you determine the, surround, the surroundings that you are surrounded with by your judgment, you can actually determine through that, by dint of that, you, it will follow that you'll raise your behavior by judging favorably. I want to share one story that the Talmud brings about someone who judged favorably in an astonishing way and found favor even when it was not at all evident from the onset. It's interesting that the Talmud gives this story and gives a few hints as to the characters involved, but the Midrash tells us that these people were actually very famous people. And the Talmud begins, someone who judges favorably, someone who judges his friend favorably, God will judge that person favorably too. And there's a story with one man who was in the upper Galilee and was hired to work for someone for three years in the south. So he, he lives in the northern Israel and he travels to the south and he's working. He's been contracted for three years to work for this person. And I'll tell you the secret, who these people are. The worker is the great Rabbi Akiva before he became a great scholar. And the employer is the great Rabbi Eliezer who ends up being Rabbi Akiva's teacher. So he's working for him for three years. As we know, Rabbi Akiva began his path towards Torah scholarship at the age of 40. So this is beforehand. 
even before he became a great scholar, he had very scintillating character. So it's, he's working for him for three years, and three years are over, and it's the day before Yom Kippur. And he tells his employer, pay me for three years of work, and I'll go, and I'll go back to my family and my children, and I'll feed them. And the employer says, sorry, I don't have any cash. He says, ah, no problem. Give me fruits. You give me fruits. You have a big field. You're very wealthy. I'll just sell the fruits. Take the cash. No problem. He says, I'm sorry. I don't have any fruits. No problem. Give me real estate. This is one of the wealthiest people in the South. Loads of real estate. Just give me some real estate, parcels of real land. I'll sell them and I'll have fine. Sorry, I don't have that. Or give me livestock. I don't have that. Give me pillows and blankets, things that I could sell, pedal them on. I don't have that either. Sorry, I can't help you. So he picks up his stuff, his clothing, and he heads south back to his family empty-handed after three years of work. Several weeks later, it's after the holiday of Sukkot. The employer, he takes the compensation of his worker, and he takes also three donkeys laden, one with food, one with drink, and one with all kinds of goodies. And he travels to the north to go pay him. And he gets to his house, and he's so excited to see him, and they have a big, a big feast, and they eat, and they drink, and he pays him. And then they say, okay, well, what were you thinking? They have this uh, debriefing. What, what happened with this conversation? So the employer says, when I told you I don't have money, what did you think? What were you suspecting? So the employee says, well, I suspected that you're out of cash because you found a good deal. It was a good business opportunity and it was really cheap and you just used all your cash to buy the business. Fine. And when I told you, give me livestock, what did you expect? Well, so maybe you rented out all your animals to other people to work, so you didn't have them with you. And when I said to you, give me land, what did you expect? It says, well, maybe there are other people who are who are using it. And when I said to you, give me fruits, what do you say? I said, well, I, th- I thought maybe they weren't tithed. And when I said to you, give me the pillows and blankets, what did you suspect? I said, well, maybe you made a vow to give all your possessions to the temple, trying to judge him favorably on every account. And then he tells him, I promise you that every single thing that you said was correct. Every single, every single one of these machinations that you came up to judge favorably actually was true. And the reason why, he tells him, I actually took all my possessions and I donated them to the temple, to charity, because I have a son, Hercules, and he is not studying Torah, and I wanted to give away all my money as that in the merit of that, the child, my child will study Torah. And then when I went to visit my friends, the other rabbis, and Allah is when someone makes a vow based upon certain pretenses that turn out to be false, you're able to annul the vow. They annul the vow, and that's why I have some cash. And then he f- concludes the episode, just like you judge me favorably, God will judge you favorably. And that concludes the episode. It's interesting that Talmud does not tell us that this is Rabbi Akiva 
and Rabeliezer, but we know from other sources that it is. And we see really how far this really goes to come up with all these various uh, these various answers to explain inexplicable behavior in a way that judges the person favorably. So again, the three teachings of Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia, number one, make yourself a mentor, a teacher, and many mentors, and find mentors, be on the prowl for to be a receptacle, a student. Also have a good friend that's helpful in many accounts, be that a therapist or a spouse or multiple friends, Surround yourself in good company, but that can only be done if you judge people favorably. If you don't judge people favorably, you'll be able to nitpick and find fault in everyone. If someone has so many sins, you don't want them as a friend, you don't want them as a teacher. If you judge favorably, not only will God judge you favorably, but you'll be able to fulfill the first parts of the Mishnah, having a teacher and having a friend, and be able to glean all the benefits that that entails.